This is Success Beyond the Score, giving insights and tips to help you learn how to build your music career from the best in the field by Millicent Stevenson. Millicent is a multi-award winning saxophonist and endorser of Harry Hartman's Fiber Reads. She is currently serving on the Executive Committee of the Musicians' Union. With over 40 years experience in the creative industry, Millicent has honed her performance and business skills. She provides personal development training and coaching via her online platform, successbeyondthescore.com. Hello, and welcome to Success Beyond the Score. I'm so pleased that you're here. It's season two, it's the conclusion of it, and it's my episode 20, and I'm going to talk to you about what I got from interviewing my six fantastic, fab- fabulous guests. Um, they were great, absolutely great. And the best thing is they're all from the West Midlands in the UK. <laughs> um, I, I say that because um, the world tends to think it's only London anyone can come from, but that's not the case. We've got great musicians up and down the UK and uh, they all should be celebrated. Um, What I like about my guests is that they're all full-time musicians and sometimes there is a little bit of a feeling that you can't make it in the music industry. And that's why I invited these guests on because they told us how they were making it in the music industry and how they earn their income and cover all their bills through their music. And that's really just really so close to my heart that this is doable. It is possible. I know that lockdown is you know, it's really hit everybody and it's, we've all been struggling, but there are musicians who are making it and doing it. And we're all getting back on our feet, including myself, getting back on my feet financially as easing has happened and we're allowed to sort of perform and do things. So what I wanted to do today was just to really tell you about what I took away from each of the guests. I'm going to try to keep it to one thing, But as I talk, maybe there's other things that will kind of just come in. But I just hope that my experiences, my personal experiences related to what they've said will also help you to maximize your music. So let's get on with it. Now, my first guest for my season two was Tony Bean. Tony Bean is the CEO of 5AM Records and... Tony has done so much. Um, He started as a guitarist. He was taught by his mother. He did a bit of songwriting, did a little bit of sort of production on the side, formed a band. The band got signed to a major label. He continued to progress in his songwriting. And then at one point, he just decided music production is way. And so he built his studio with his advance. He um, connected people. He was able to record major names and also move into artist development. So what have I learned from Tony? Like I said, I've learned a lot. But the main thing I've picked out of his interview is, number one, you don't know where you will end up, but you certainly know where you're starting. And number two, networking is key. Treat everybody right. So I did say it was going to be one, it's two already, sorry. (laughs) But when I look at my life and I 
And in, in, in the context of what Tony was saying, I realized that I started off when I was young playing a bit of piano, singing here and there, playing the clarinet, playing the steel pans. And it really wasn't until I'd left school that I picked up the saxophone. Lots and lots have happened in my journey. But um, I am now talking to you. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. And when I started back in the 80s playing saxophone, it was not even a star on my horizon to be a podcaster. It was not even in my mind that I wanted to help women get into music. It wasn't in my mind that I wanted to create learning materials that people can access online from a website called Success Beyond the Score. Um, it just wasn't in my mind. All I was thinking about was being on stage and getting my next gig and maybe trying to get paid. <laughs> so you don't know where you're going to end up, but you certainly need to have your dreams. You certainly need to have your targets. You certainly want to have your aspirations that you want to work towards and work towards them. But part of that journey is working with other people. It's other people that helps to open some of the doors. And of course, you've got to walk through them. You've got to open some for yourself, but working with people and networking really helps. Um, when I started off in music in the 80s, I didn't know someone called Juliet Fletcher. And it wasn't until a couple of decades later that I met her. And we kept getting in contact with each other for one thing or another, working together and just keeping in contact. But a few months ago, she told me about a conference called Time for Artists. And it was a group of artists meeting together and in the broader sense of artistry, photographers, um, film directors, musicians, uh, and, and so on, meeting together to look at our response during this time. And uh, when the conference finished, I got a lift to the train station. So conversations continued with us in the car. And uh, that was it. Caught my train, came home, changed some of the things I was doing on the back of what I learned from the conference. And then a few weeks later, I got a phone call from the driver and he said to me, I was really impressed with some of the things you were saying at the conference. And I have a contact in this particular publication. And I really think that your story would be great for them. Can I put you in contact with a journalist? Of course, you do not turn down something like that, especially if it's a publication that is really, really good. Of course, if it's a publication that goes against your values and your beliefs, you probably have to turn it down or maybe you want to think about it. But this one just hit all the, the, the levels and the bells and everything. It worked. So, yes, I had the interview um, last week. But my point is this. What if when I was in that car, I was misbehaving? What if I was just getting on their nerves? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know I've painted that as an extreme, but what I'm saying is I was being me and it's important to be yourself. I was being me at that conference, but it was enough that it resonated with someone for them to open up their diary and share a contact they have, with, a journalistic contact and say, here, this would be good for you. You know, because people... People suss you out. You know, Tony just didn't become a CEO overnight. He didn't just become an artist development um, person for major names. He didn't just become this prolific producer. It was contacts. 
it was treating people right. And he mentioned that in his interview, um, you know, and then, and doors open. And then when you walk through that door, behave, <laughs> you know, do your thing and still look after people and still be nice. In fact, here's a good thing from the great book, treat people how you want to be treated, <laughs> you know, because if you want to be treated well, treat other people well, you know, if you don't want that, then hey ho. But that was what I learned from Tony's interview and it really resonated with me. And I just wanted to share that with you, that where you are now is not where you're going to be. And on that journey, on your journey, you will meet people, just treat them right. And sometimes, um, you know, you want to cast your bread upon the waters because you know what? You're not looking for something. You know, you're feeding other people, you're helping other people. You know, and at the conference, I wasn't doing that because I wanted the attention. It was just that conversation was said and I had an opinion, which I thought would be helpful. And I contributed to that. You know, so sometimes in part of the networking thing, it's a two-way street. It's not just about what you get and what you can take. It's also about what you can give. And I'm sure Tony gave a lot of his time and effort and, and the quality of his workmanship to many, many people for him to progress in music. And that's another side to networking. Don't just take, don't look for what you can get, but rather see how you can help others and, and how you can support others. And then I'm not saying you must do things for free. And I'm not saying that you should bend yourself over backwards and hurt yourself. And so I'm not saying that, but I'm saying you just want to be that person that you're comfortable with yourself. And at some point, you never know what could happen. Now, my second guest is Louise Dengate. Louise is a phenomenal, her voice. Oh my gosh, I love her voice. But she's an agency director, music agency director. She's a choir director. She's a vocal coach. And she is so interested in stage psychology. Now, that got me straight away. I have a counseling background, so it just kind of clicked, you know, and I'm like, I just needed to know more. And I went off and did the test that she mentioned. I hope you did too. I'm not going to share my results with you because that's quite personal to me. But I think what really got me thinking is about our headspace, you know, as musicians getting on stage. Sometimes there are days when I'm not sure why I do it. There are days when I say to myself, what am I putting myself through? Because I can get so anxious and palpitations. And <sighs> I know people say that's adrenaline. You're getting ready to, you know, do your thing and deliver on stage. Sometimes it actually hurts. <laughs> that's my tummy. And I'm thinking, why am I doing this? But that's that side. But the other side I really wanted to go into, which is connected with that, is how we think about ourselves. And that's kind of what Louise is bringing out, the way we think about ourselves and how that impacts what we do on stage. Years ago, I was not a confident musician. In fact, I found it very difficult to do me on stage. I was constantly thinking about how to be someone else, how to be the person that pleased the audience and what was it I was supposed to do? And if I got it wrong, I'm a very bad person. And people don't really want to listen to me. I had so much stuff going on in my head. It's a wonder how I made it to where I am today. 
But actually, no, I know why and how I made it today because I had to get a hold of myself. When I used to go and perform on stage, I would think that people wouldn't like what I have to do. And in fact, I'd be looking into the audience for the face that had a quizzical look in the eyes and a knitted brows and looking at me like, what's going on? I always spotted that person. And when I realized I was doing that, I realized that not that I was looking for that person, but because I was critical of myself and because I was critical of me, I was putting it out there onto the audience. And therefore I was restricting my creativity and my playing. I couldn't be relaxed. I was just worried about making that mistake and dropping a note. And, and at the end of the day, we all make mistakes on stage. I mean, even now I will play and there'll be the odd note I will drop. And I know some of you go, yay, I heard that too. But many times when I ask my husband, gosh, I dropped that note. He goes, what? No, I didn't hear it. And it, honestly, he's got a really good ear, you know, um, it was moving past that point of being critical of myself. And when I moved past that point, I began to be a hundred percent on stage delivering the show of a lifetime that people wanted to hear. People wanted to buy, people just wanted to be a part of. And that message is what I take from Louise. It really emphasized that for me, dealing with our mental space is so important. Getting that right is so important. I like watching tennis and I obviously support the Williams sisters and a lot of the top ranking uh, tennis players. But if you look when they are sitting in their chair at the break at the beginning, they are reading affirmations. They are concentrating. They're thinking about their mental mindset and getting that right. And there are other sports where they've got their um, psychologist on the sidelines, ready to sort of tell them those positive things about themselves, to reinforce it so that they can go in there and win. And we may not, as musicians, be able to afford our own personal psychologist. We might be able to do, go to some counseling sessions or psychotherapy sessions just to work out our headspace. But sometimes we've got to bring that to our performance. We've got to bring our own affirmations. We've got to bring our own positivity in our mind to get ourselves on stage, to deliver that show of a lifetime and to be 100% present to do what we're there to do. And that's what I took away from Louise's um, session. And I hope that helps you if you're struggling um, with the way you think about yourself, you know, whether you think you're an imposter, whether you think you're fake, whether you think you shouldn't be there, whether you think... You know, you're going to make a mess of it. Whatever those negative things are, just try to get hold of them. Because I tell you, once you've unlocked them, looked at them, put them away where they belong, and then walk forward into a more positive mindset, your delivery on stage is going to be really, really good. And my third guest is Abigail Kelly, and Abigail is an international operatic soprano. She is, her voice is, oh my gosh, another voice, another voice. It's just oh, crazy, really crazy. Her voice is insane. And, um, you know, Abigail is also um, an ambassador for the National Touring Opera. And so she loves teaching. She loves helping children. She loves getting people to understand opera. 
and and to in, in, in really embrace it. And you know, we had a really funny time in the in the interview where she talked about getting changed backstage. We talked about that, and it is it is a contrast. You know, when people see us on stage, and if you're a musician listening today, I think you'll get this bit. And if you're not a musician, you're going to have a revelation. But people see us performing and they think, wow, you do that instrument so well, you sing so well, you look good. And wow, 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 you get all these wows, yeah? What people don't see is backstage. (laughs) They don't see the kind of, uh, space you have to get ready. You know, Abigail has to get into certain costumes and it's just difficult to um, find space to do that. I remember going to a wedding and the room I changed into was just literally the room where all the cha- tables and chairs are stacked up. It was probably about, a, the space I had was probably about a metre by a metre square. It, it was not very big at all probably a bit bigger than that meter and a half you know it wasn't big it was not big yet I had to go on stage looking great and doing my thing and that is sometimes a juxtaposition to being a musician you know people don't see you when you've had a bad day at home you know you've had an argument with your husband or your wife or um, you've had a bill land on the door might be thinking, oh, I'm going to pay that, you know, or you've had some disaster that's happened, you know. People don't see that, but you go on stage and you deliver that show and people just think your life is great. You have no troubles. You have no problems. You look fantastic. (laughs) Um, That's the life of a musician, you know, and, you know, when we sort of climbed the ladder to our success, Hopefully the backstage will be better and hopefully there'll be fewer problems. I really don't think so. I think the problems will still be there. Backstage might be better. You might get the green room treatment and people will think ahead for you. And that'd be nice, really nice. And I've had that. But the sort of day-to-day problems don't stop. So we've got to balance that as you do with any job. You know, you could be working in a shop. You could be um, a medical professional, you know, life is life. You still get on, you still get up and get on with it. <laughs> and of course, you know, if you're fortunate, you might have a wardrobe assistant to help you or a makeup artist. I certainly have that for my major shows, not just jazz. I have a makeup artist and uh, a wardrobe person and so on, because it's just so many things, because I'm directing the whole show as well. So many things to be thinking about that you have that. But generally speaking, you know, we don't have that for most of our gigs. The other thing I really enjoyed about Abigail's um, uh, interview was about how to memorize music. And she has got to memorize a whole opera, her part and have an awareness of what everyone else is doing. And sometimes she's doing that in French or German or Italian. I am just blown away by how she does it all. But I would encourage you to go back and listen to her interview about how she does the memorization because she's got a fantastic technique. And that might just help you if you're struggling to memorize your music or your chords or your notes. Um, For me, how do I memorize? Well, I listen to the music over and over again. Um, I do read music and I play by ear. 
but I don't have to read music all the time because I'm a, the way I perform on stage, I move around. So I've got to have it in my head. But what I do is that I listen to the original. If I'm doing a cover, I'm listening to the original many, many times when I'm driving, when I'm doing chores or whatever, I'm listening to it. I get to the point I listen to it that I'm a bit sick of listening to it. But what I'm trying to do is just get it into the, into my mind, into my memory. And then I will spend time working out the, the melody line um, just by ear, just listening to the, the first sort of couple of notes and then copying and then next set of notes and copying. Um, sometimes I can do whole lines, to be honest, because I've done it for so many years. You can just pick up and then there's just the odd notes that I kind of fill in. But if you're just starting, then you'd probably need to just get the first note on your instrument, then get notes one and two, get that right, then get notes one, two and three get that right, repeat one, two, and three until you're happy, then build in note four and five. I always say note at a time, note at a time, note at a time. You only start to do groups of notes when you've actually got that music vocabulary in your mind. You can actually predict the notes going up and down and, and all that so you can see the direction. So that's how I kind of learned the melody. And then the other important thing is um, the actual chords and the, the rhythms and the beats within the music. So, you know, when I'm listening to the cover originally, before I even start playing and working that out, I'm also picking up on what's, where are the chords here? What's going where? What's the drum beat here? And all that sort of musical things that's going on in the background. So that then I, when I'm improvising, I can kind of sit my things around those sort of things. Um, there's one or two other little things I do, but I just wanted to give you a quick overview how I actually learn the music and then it's practice 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 until you're fed up of it and then you kind of got it um sometimes it takes me um well no, i shouldn't say that uh, what i'm going to say sometimes it takes me weeks the truth is no if i've got a gig to do within seven days i have to learn the track i have to learn it within 24 to 48 hours do everything i've just told you within two days which then gives me another two or three days to relax with it and to think about the performance elements and to really be able to play it without looking at notes and get that memorized and so on. And sometimes I will go on stage with notes, but I just go on with the bits I struggle to remember. But when I've got sort of weeks to learn, it's a bit easier than that. It just becomes second nature. Once it comes second nature, it's great. I don't forget it. So that's it. <laughs> I hope that helps you. Now, my fourth guest was Anna Brooks, and Anna is an international uh, saxophonist. She's a music arranger, director. Um, you know what? Anna can do so much. And not only that, she's also touring. So she's touring with the Jules Holland Band. She's with the Brooklyn Funk Essentials. And Anna has two adult uh, boys. And she mentioned in her interview that they have ADHD. And uh, she mentioned in the interview that because they're at uni and they still need a bit of help, as any parent knows, children who's just gone to uni, they need help. Sometimes she's in the wings of the stage waiting to go on and she's there wiring money or talking to them or whatever. And then she has to go on stage. And so nothing's happened and deliver. And, you know, Anna's journey started um, after university. She did a music degree and then, uh, then she had her children. And then when the children were young, she started her music career and built it up to a full-time career. And um, 
I think the thing that struck me with Anna is just that thing of multitasking. You know, sometimes that's the reality. If you're a parent and you're a musician, you've got to juggle, you know, you've got to balance it. Um, my daughter's bass teacher, his wife is also a musician and he's a musician full time and they have young children. And it's, and it's that decision about, well, who's going to have which nights to gig and what times and where and balancing the children. And it's great if you've got family support and you, or you've got a nanny or something like that. But sometimes it's, you've, you've got to do it yourself. And Anna was a single mother, you know, and she fortunately had her parental support. So that helped, but that's the reality. You know, um, when my children were younger, I didn't start my music until my son was in secondary. My daughter was in junior school. So she was probably about eight and nine. My son was about 11, 12. So around that time that I felt as though, okay, they're at an age where they can get to school and back from school. And I was beginning to feel a little bit ease in my responsibilities. And I felt that actually I can start thinking a little bit more about me. And so um, music began to become more front and center. Um, years before that, when I was single, music was what I did as a hobby um, because I had another job in education, got married, still did my music and the children came, it slowed down. I just did the odd thing here and there until, you know, they were in secondary and junior school. And um, the good thing about it is that I kind of um, include my children in my music. You know, if I'm rehearsing, they know that I need that rehearsal time. If they've got their instruments, I help them with their instruments. And when they were old enough to kind of just sit still and not wander off and behave, <laughs> then I thought, okay, we'll bring them to a gig. Um, they used to get a bit restless at first because, you know, mum's on stage doing what? I just want to go and do what have you. So, you know, um, that was a bit distracting for me. I've got to admit, it was very distracting for me because I'll be there about to go on stage and I can see them looking bored or wanting to wander off. And I'm thinking, yes, I was to sit in that seat and not move. <laughs> That's kind of hard, you know. You can't always be giving the evil light to your children from stage. It just doesn't work. Your audience is like, what's going on? So, yeah, I, just, I didn't find that that worked, bringing them. Uh, they did come to one or two gigs. So I had to arrange with my husband just to kind of keep them while I did my thing. Um, but as I got older and they kind of understood what I was doing and they liked what I was doing, they were able to come along and sit in the audience and enjoy and support me, which is nice. And eventually they got to an age um, that they were able to sort of help out. You know, um, my son was able to help out with my PA system rather than me thinking about running down to turn knobs. He could do that. My daughter was quite good at doing other things as well. And that kind of worked out for us. But that's not always the case. You know, you may not have children interested in music. You might find that you haven't got family support and you want to do your music and you're single, what do you do? And it is sometimes thinking about slowing it down, which is what I did when my children were younger. I just slowed it all down and thought, okay, I can't gig out on a Friday night or a Saturday night anymore. So let me see if I can find something in a day when they're at school. But if you're a full-time musician, um, obviously you've got to get the money in as well, haven't you? So you've got to think about, how can I still earn from my music um, when I've got a child? You have to look into things like songwriting and sync licensing and uh, music libraries and maybe teaching in the daytime 
rather than teaching on an evening when the children need your support or you know um, if the child is really young um, and you've got someone who can look after them for two hours maybe you can teach for two hours while your child's in another room with someone and it does come down to trust and making sure that your child is with someone you trust that they're looked after and so you're not having to worry about that because as a parent you do worry I do worry you know I, I worried if my kids were at my parents' house thinking how they're getting on all right then. My mum's not losing it. <laughs> oh dear. But, you know, we do worry and that gets in the way of our playing. And then at some point you have to think, well, actually, my child is there and I'm here and I've got to work. So let me focus on my work, get it done. And as soon as I finish, I can make that phone call to check in on them. Or as soon as I finish, I can get back to them because it is tough. And I don't think it's any different to any other job, you know, as a parent, if you had a job, I don't know, in engineering, or if you had a job working in a local shop or whatever, you probably still have the same sort of wonders and worries about what's happening with your child when you're working. And as a musician, it's, it's, it's no different, but it is about looking after our mental space. It is about making arrangements that our child is comfortable so that we can be comfortable doing our thing. And sometimes just thinking about what other work we can do. Some musicians sometimes do an A, another job um, whilst their music takes a little bit of a backseat so they can pay the bills. And then as soon as they're able to have the right childcare things in place or the child goes to school, then they can pick up back their music and do that. Um, I was watching uh, Beyonce's concert on Netflix and you see at the end when she's with her children, and that's, it's good that her husband looks after her children. Of course, she's at a, a level where she can have a nanny and someone that looks after her children or, or pair. Um, but we don't have that. So it, it is different ways what we have to think about how we do our childcare, how we do our family setup so we can do our music. And if we do it right, we are happy. If we do it wrong, it's a nightmare. But my heart's there for you. I have been there and I know how difficult it is. And I hope that, you know, as your child or your children get older, you are able to do more music. And that's what I did. As my children got older, I was able to pick up more and more music until they were at a level where they could look after themselves. And, and also when you have a family um, as a musician, our job is very, it's sociable for our customers and clients, but antisociable for us as a musician. Because we are often asked to perform at a time when our family would be at home and we're not there with them. So, you know, if you're gigging on a Friday night or a Saturday, if you think about it, your, your children would have been at school all week. And then Friday night, they're thinking, great, mommy and daddy time or, you know, Saturday parent time. And you're not there because you're working, you know, so they're kind of missing out on that. Um, so one of the things it's important to do is to think about when you have your family time, when you have your time with your child, um, because you, you, if you're working seven days a week, flat out, sleeping when they're at school and then going off to work, then they're not really seeing you and you're not really developing a relationship. And this is where families break down, because ultimately that child wants you to be with them, to help them navigate the world that they're going through. And of course, you want to get money in to cover the bills and so on. But it is about selecting times in the week when you can spend quality time together. 
you know, so choosing a couple of evenings when you're saying, this is my time with my family. I'm not going to gig. I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to write. I'm not going to do anything musical. I'm not going to work, basically. I'm just going to spend time with my family. And I tell you what, your family would really love you for that because they know that at that time in the week, you know, they've got your attention, you've got theirs, and you can get on and build together. Because at the end of the day, when you come home from work, or if anything else goes wrong, it's your family that you need the support. So if they're not there or they don't really, you don't have that relationship, then that's a lot more frustrating for you and for them. So I would say build that, that time for family time, uh, work that out with your family and, you know, and, and your diary. Um, really, really important for our longevity in the music business. <laughs> yeah, so for me, what I did is um, I started teaching um, from home. Oh, gosh, it's been a few years now. Um, lockdown, I've done it online. But my teaching times tended to be from four o'clock to about seven o'clock because that's when people, uh, the children come from school and they want uh, lessons. And that really was my family meal time. So I had to sort of in the daytime plan the meal, cook it early so that my family could eat whilst I was working. And then I had this thing about should there be cooking smells when people are coming to my home for teaching? <laughs> it should be neutral. There shouldn't be smells of chicken and rice and peas and stuff like that. <laughs> and my husband's like, woman, get a grip, man. You know, it's a house. People cook. <laughs> and he did say that, actually. <laughs> But um, that's one of the things about, you know, teaching from home. But the, my key point really was that I was working between four and seven o'clock and that was my family time. So I had to make some decisions. I decided that there was only certain days of the week I'd be teaching. And I think at the time I used to teach Mondays, Thursdays, and I think maybe Wednesdays. I think there were three times. Um, and then not on a Tuesday, not on a Friday and a Saturday, because that's usually when I was gigging. And then my gigs would tend to be a Friday evening or a Saturday evening. I didn't really have daytime Saturdays at that. So it means I could spend time with the family in the daytime. But I then cut down my teaching to about maybe two evenings and then did it more daytime. So when the children were at school, my husband was at work, then I could do some daytime teaching and that was better. So really it's about that kind of balance about what works for your family setup and what you're doing. And of course, you've got to fit time for yourself. And that's the hardest bit, isn't it? Just standing still for a day or half a day and saying to yourself, right, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to binge on Netflix or I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to exercise, fitting in exercise, you know, all these things that you've got to do because it's just a big juggle when your job expects you to perform, you know, as a musician at those times when it's usually the time other people be using for family or for exercise. We've got it the other way around. So plan, plan, plan. <laughs> now, my fifth guest was Dan Whitehouse. Dan is signed to Reveal Records. He's a singer-songwriter. Um, his voice, his lyrics are so deep. They are so illuminating. Um, he was touring um, a few months ago and I went to his concert and I, I was just so taken away by his take on things. And um, really provocative. You should listen to his music. One of the things I was talking to him about in his interview, um, which came out about the inner artist, 
And I said to him, how do you get in contact with your inner artist? And one of the things he said, which really struck me, which I was not doing, which I am doing now, he said, spending time with yourself, spending time, you know, thinking through your day, or if it's the morning, the morning, having a journal, writing down your thoughts, just kind of really doing that because it helps you to get in contact with your music and your songwriting and so on. And I left thinking, wow, that's, that's kind of good now. I must give that a try. And since then, I've been doing that every day. I've actually got my journal and it might be at night or morning and I've written about my day or written about the day before, depends when I'm actually doing that journal. And I've found it's cleared my mind so much. I've had a journal off and on all the way through my life, but I sometimes give it up because I can't write as fast as I can think. And there's lots of things I'm thinking and I just can't get it into the pen in my hand. And so I just give it up. But what I found having listened to Dan was to just take my time. Take my time and write. Take your time and write. And that's what I did. And it really helped me to clear my mind up. And if you haven't done it, I'd really encourage you to try it. Try it for at least two to three months. And you think it's a long time. No, you really need to kind of get into the habit of it. And, you know, you don't have to write loads. You know, Dan was saying you don't have to write loads because there's some days I probably write about, I don't know, 10, 20 sentences. Sometimes I'm really pushed for time. It's five. Sometimes I write two to three pages of notes. Just really depends what's happening. But it really helps to clear my thinking. It really helps me to breathe to actually put what I'm thinking on the paper, on the page. And at some point, not right now, because I've got a few other projects I'm handling, I'm, I'm able to look back and grab some nuggets to write my songs, you know. And I would encourage that for you. If you're just finding that you're not getting that time to really think through your music, have a go at journaling. Um, you don't have to do it because you want to be a songwriter. Do it because you want to unpack your soul. You want to unpack what's in your mind, on your heart. Get it onto the page. Obviously, put it away somewhere private and secret if you're saying stuff about the family. You don't want them reading it. Maybe you want them to read it. I don't know. <laughs> but it's really, really worth doing. And I encourage you to do that. It certainly worked for me. And it's been so helpful. Thank you, Dan, for that. Absolutely thank you. <laughs> And the book you write in doesn't have to be anything expensive. You know, where we are, there's a shop called Poundland and everything's a pound. You can get an A4 exercise book lined. It'll do. It'll do. But of course, if you want to buy yourself something really nice, treat yourself on a fancy pen, go for it. Some of you prefer to just type it into your phone or a tablet or whatever. If that works for you, great. I don't do that because obviously you're getting that blue light and I know you can get filters and stuff, but I just want to get away from technology and get back to engaging with the page and using my hand. So have, that, have a go of that and see if that works to get to, and if that's more creative for you or if the technological thing works, go for that too. And my sixth guest is the international Ruby Turner. Ruby really shot to fame with the number one R&B hit in the US. 
And uh, she also is an actress, a Hollywood actress, and uh, she lives in sunny Birmingham. <laughs> she is just so down to earth. That's one of the things that really came across. I'm not saying that it didn't come across with everybody else, but the fact that she's Hollywood, the fact that she has a US hit, the fact that she's internationally touring, the fact that she works with Jules Holland, the fact that she does the fact. She is so down to earth. You just, she has no airs and graces. I think that's fantastic because, you know, I know some people who put on airs and graces, you can't get near them and stuff like that, but she is so down to earth. And I like that. I think that is so important. Notwithstanding, she's a private woman and notwithstanding, she, you know, you need to have your boundaries. Um, and I think as an artist, that's a really good point. But when you're on stage and, and people see you and they know that you're a great person to, to know, that you still have to have your boundaries, that people just can't walk up into your house and sit down just because you talk to them on stage and you get on with them. You still need to have that kind of line that, that says, that's my job, this is me, and this is how far we can go. I think that's really, really important. And, you know, as um, people become A-listers, you know, they have bodyguards. It's a shame, isn't it, really, that they have to have that. But some fans just get, they just go beside themselves when they see them. They just lose it. And, um, you know, the poor artist is really, you know, struggling. I remember watching, there's a YouTube clip of Celine Dion. There's a lady that comes on stage. And she, the, the security guard was going to come up and take that girl off stage, you know, and Celine was like, okay, no, I'm handling and Celine handles it. And at the end, Celine sort of collapses on stage when the lady goes up like, whew, what have you? And then she gets up and she does the show. But uh, that clip of Celine Dion dealing with that fan, who obviously is a, like a fan that really loves Celine, um, showed just the humanity of Celine that, you know, she's still human. She sings great. She does a great stage, but we're still human. And I'm sure that if, as you, as a musician listening, you know that, yeah, you're still, you're still you. You're still um, the person that you've always been, but people see you a different way. And then you've got to handle those expectations with that, that pushing you where you don't want to go. So listening to Ruby was really good because obviously she's talked about mundane. She talked about stage appearance. She talked about the whole glitz and glamour. And it's really worth just going back and listening to her interview. Another thing I should say that really was interesting was talking about health. You know, um, some of you already know I wrote the article for the Musicians Union called um, The Journey of a Menopausal Musician because that's the stage I'm at. So it was really good chatting to Ruby about that and dealing with her, her thing where she'd be having her flannel on the, on the piano so she can just mop the brow when she's got having a hot flush on stage or whatever. That was just so funny. But, you know, as musicians, we are human. We will have health challenges. The menopause is a natural stage of ev for every woman. And that will happen at whatever, whatever time your biological clock says it has to happen, it's going to happen. And you will have different symptoms. You won't have the same as me. You might have the same as me, but you'll have different symptoms. But as a musician, we've got to cope with that. Okay, so if you're male, you may not have that. Disclaimer, at the time of this recording, according to the NHS, men do not have a menopause but they experience symptoms related to other concerns.
but you might have other health challenges. You know, you might have a, a kidney function. You may have a joint problem. I know a lot of guys are used to lifting their PA equipment in and out of the van and stuff. And then you get a slip disc or something, and then you've got to perform and you've got to think about how else can I do this? Um, so health challenges happen. And I just found that really good to um, chat to Ruby about that because at her level doing what she does, she's coping with it. And I had to look at the ways I coped with it. I can go on stage with my fan. I'm just trying to see if it's nearby. It's not nearby, but I have a little fan that I have and I pop it on a music stand. And so if I get a hot flush, I just put press my little button and I'm getting air and that's just making things better and cooler for me so I can do what I've got to do. I have a flannel, which I go on stage with. Um, not necessarily this one. I have a black one. This one's green. But I go for black because I, if I have to mop up in any way, then the makeup isn't coming off and the audience seeing all that makeup coming off. But also it's dabbing. You know, if you're going to mop sweat, don't, don't rub because it just takes all your makeup off. Just dab, just pat, just pat lightly just to get that removed. And that really works quite well. You know, sometimes I've bought an extra outfit with me to a gig. So I'm thinking if I'm going to have a hot flush, I'm going to get really sweaty. I've got something I can change into afterwards. Or you can arrive with your um, sort of, you know, smartly dressed jeans and what have you. So you can actually set up your equipment, change to put on your performance clothes and then change back at the end. Sometimes it's arriving a bit early to the, the gig so that you can settle in, you can do your sound check, you can look after yourself, whatever your body needs. You know, you can make sure certain things are in place if you've rang ahead to have certain things put in place to help you do your performance. You know, sometimes if you're, say, diabetic, you've got to think about, depending on the type of diabetes you have, you've got to think about when to take your injections or your tablet. You've got to think about when you're eating, you know, you've got to think about that rest that you need. You know, you, you might have um, gynae problems, so gynecological problems, I say it properly. And so you've got to factor in when you can sort of go and look after yourself, when you can go to the loo, to the break and stuff like that. Um, one of the things I had was fibroids. And that was a whole thing about how am I going to look after myself for a gig and how long is this set? And sometimes as well, even when I'm teaching, and I was teaching at a school, I got to think about when can I have my break so I can do what I need to do so I can be comfortable. And, you know, this is just the real thing. You know, some of us might have joint problems in our fingers, or if you're a violinist, you're going to have a neck problems, shoulder problems. And you've got to think about, well, how do I make myself more comfortable to play? And of course, you know, if the health challenges get so much, you then have to think about how long you have in this particular career as a musician. And it's kind of a sad thing to say, but every career has its length and time. But sometimes you have to think about the retirement element of it, if the health conditions are going to get in the way and work towards the next thing, rather than waiting for things to come to a head and then you're suddenly left and not sure how you're going to pay your bills. So that's the end of my season two. I hope you really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed sharing the information with you. I've enjoyed interviewing my guests. 
Um, listen, if you've not had chance to go through all the episodes or you're just coming to me now, season two consists of 20 episodes. Please do check them out. There's also season one. Season one's not on YouTube, but you can get season one um, on all the other platforms, iTunes, Spotify, and so on. So do go and check them out. And while you're waiting for more from me on Success Beyond the School podcast, please check out 10 Reasons Why They Will Pay You Before Gig Day. It's a free gift from me to you that you can get. Or there's another free gift called 25 Secrets of the Successful Gigging Musician, Singer, Rapper and Spoken Word Artist. All you have to do is go along to www.successbeyondascore.com forward slash free gifts. And you can download either or both of them. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Bye for now.